quit high school because, you know, I was like, oh, you know, this is book learning. I need an apprenticeship with a musician. And I manifested the greatest musicians on the planet. This podcast is offered through the Sacred Community Project an inner spiritual collective working to lower the barriers of access to contemplative and devotional practices. Through the universal teachings of love, service, remembrance, and truth, SCP utilizes modern technology to promote eternal values. Learn more at sacredcommunityproject.org. Welcome everybody back to the Sacred Community Podcast. This is Hari. Um, and it is my pleasure to uh, share with you today an interview that I did with Daniel Paul. Uh, Daniel Paul is uh, an incredible topple player. Some of you may have seen him um, playing with Jayu Tall, but probably less of you know him as the uh, personal assistant and manager for Ali Akbar Khan, uh, who is regarded as one of the most influential and talented musicians of our time. And so this is a special interview where we're going to dive into uh, Daniel's time with Ali Akbar Khan. Daniel actually spent nine years um, studying at the Ali Akbar Khan School of Music, which was a college um, created by Ali Akbar Khan, where uh, there was a variety of masters who taught there, including Zakir Hussain, um, who was also one of Daniel's early tabla teachers, um, while also be looking at classical Indian classical music um, in general and kind of diving into uh, you know what are the different rhythms used in there what is a raga how is this music used performed listened to and appreciated um, how do uh, we participate in it you know a lot of our western music we kind of sit as an audience um, but in Indian classical you know there's a much deeper way to appreciate it and it's to understand what's going on and learning how to keep um, time and rhythm we'll do um, some time exploring um, the tablas themselves going over the different strokes and kind of isolating things so that um, you have the chance to hear um, all the different sounds um, of the tabla and then exploring Indian classical rhythms um, as well as, you know, stories about these great uh, teachers and Indian classical musicians and personal stories uh, from Daniel's time with them. So exploring time with um, Alaraka, Zakir Hussain's father, Zakir himself, um, Ravi Shankar, and uh, the great Ali Akbar Khan. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Uh, as much as I did. And uh, just for a fun side note, uh, Daniel is also my tablet teacher. So once we start getting into some of the the more nitty gritty um, of the, the tablet performances, you'll hear him ask me to start counting. If the tablet lesson becomes a little too long for you, you can always just skip past uh, and kind of tailor your own adventure. Well, I think that is uh, enough said there. So on that note, I hope you enjoy this interview with Daniel Paul. Oh. Oh. So, Daniel, it's a pleasure to be here, and welcome to the Sacred Community Podcast. 
It's nice to be here. Thank you, Hari. So Daniel, for those of you who don't know, uh, was a student of Ali Akbar Khan and got into Tabla in the 70s uh, and has studied also with teachers like Zakir Hussain and spent time with al Araka. And I was wondering, you know, maybe we just start kind of at the beginning into your uh, transition into finding Tabla and, you know, that relationship forming with your teachers and your education. Boy, it feels like after COVID, I'm a little rusty at even trying to think about all this stuff. But let's see how we can uh, cover this. Um, in my, when I was 16, I left high school as a young hippie in 68 and uh, went to live in Amherst, Massachusetts with a bunch of older freaks. And sitting on the kitchen table was the house Bible which had just come out, be here now. Hmm. Was it 68 or maybe that was 70? 70. And Ramdas kind of coalesced for us all. And it just so happened about two years later, I was hitchhiking in California and somebody dropped me off at the Davis Whole Earth Festival. And I saw that Ramdas was the featured speaker. Hmm. So of course I was going to go. And I got there, and opening for him was something that blew my mind. It was called the Ali Akbar College Orchestra, featuring Zakir Hussain on tabla and Chitresh Das on dancing katak, and about 30 or 40 students, white kids just like me. And I was like, wow. You can learn how to do this? Are you kidding me? Zakir was like a madman on tabla. It was like, how could anyone physically ever play like that, much less study it? And so you kind of are in shock. And I was so blown away that I don't really remember Ramdas after that. And it turned out very strangely that Jayutal was singing kirtan for him mm. that night. And he was also a student of the Ali Akbar College at that time. Well, it's funny, all the things that like come together in that night. So you have Ramdas, who lives three minutes down the road from you, you know, in Maui. You have Jayutal, who is also there, who then you toured with for 30 years. 30 years. And then you have Ali Akbar Khan the school of music that you join and then become the, the assistant to, as well as Zakir Hussain, who becomes one of your first tabla teachers. My I mean, first all tabla wrapped tabla. up in yeah. one moment. Yeah. And the Ali Akbar College had a conservatory which featured Ustad Ali Akbar Khan, namesake of the college, Ali Akbar College, which still exists in San Rafael in California. So it was Khan Sab, we called him, Khan Sahib, and then he always had a tabla, a famous tabla player teaching at that time, and Zakir Hussein was the tabla maestro at that time. When I got there, there were about, in the summer, there were 150 people, you know. I mean, 30, 40 people in the beginning class and a little less in the intermediates and less in the advanced classes. And then Zakir had 20, 30 students in his classes, beginning and intermediate. And you would go and the teacher would, sit in front of you and play the instrument at you at tabla, Zakir would, and then later my other teachers, and you would play it back, and you'd leave there 
and go home immediately and practice right away before you forgot any of it. Now, they let us write it down, but in the old days in India, you know, it wasn't written down. You memorized it all, and you learned it. You were expected to memorize an awful lot. It's an incredible discipline to study with masters of that caliber. Hmm. And what were some of your courses like? They had In those days, it was a nine-week semester, and you had a beginning tabla lesson with Zakir, and then someone, an advanced student would teach a backup of the same lesson a couple of days later, give you time to practice. And we we had the same thing with, with Ustad Al-Yakbar Khan. Everyone was required or expected to study voice. Mm. My first three years, I studied vocal seriously, which meant sitting with Al-Yakbar Khan for two hours, and he would compose different compositions in different classical styles, in Drupad, in Khyal, in Tarana, and then some light bhajan occasionally, but mostly the classical styles. And then he would give variations that you would sing. Ali Akbar Khan would just be composing, improvising the composition, composing it on the spot every single time he sat down, more or less, unless he was remembering something his father taught him. And... Um, He'd pick a raga and then pick a, a rhythm, a tala, and tell the double player, okay, we're going to do it in this rhythm, or else he would just start singing it, and you'd have to figure out what rhythm it was, and you, hopefully you get that right. And um, so like this, I was kind of thrown into this strange world that existed in India of having these masters who teach you and you're basically expected to practice all day long and to to be able to take in the amount of material that they're giving you every week. Ali Akbar Khan would teach, I think, four, four days a week, uh, two two-hour classes in a sitting. And there would be vocal, there'd be instrumental on bowed instruments and flutes, a bowed flute class. And then there'd be the general beginning, intermediate, and advanced classes of sitars and sarodes, which is the instrument Ali Akbar Khan played. The sarod is like, almost like the banjo of the sitar, if I can say that, because it has a, a skin on it and a metal fretboard. Mm. So... Ali Akbar Khan, Khan Saab would teach and always have a tabla player, a student, accompanying him and playing the basic rhythm that that song or that composition he was composing, you know, would just keep cycling that called the teka. And pretty much right off the bat, I got to play teka, hmm. even before I was qualified, I would say. But in my nine years of study there, I played a lot of takeoff for Kansab for his classes, which was incredible because he would sometimes play the sarod mm. in class, most of the time play the harmonium. You would show up for vocal class, and before anyone got there, you'd go early and grab that we had two or three male tamburas, big tamburas, the string drone instrument right here. Mm -hmm. This one is a four string. And this instrument is the the soundscape upon which the music is laid. So it it gives you the one 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 sa pa pa sa one 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 five 
I'm sorry, five, one, one, one. The fifth, one, one, one. It's not in tune or I would play it for you another time. So you play that and you tune it before he arrives and you get it going to where you think it's in tune and then you put it down and you play it, take a short break, tune it some more, and then he would show up and you'd hand it to him and he'd grab it and go, nah, that's not, not even close. <laughs> and then he would go through the same process. And I would pump the harmonium for him one pitch, you know, just, just like our trusty little tuners here. And he would tune to that. So you always have the saw, which is the bass note in Indian classical music, the home note, everything it builds from the saw, and in, and the fifth is the added on there. Five, one, 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 five, one, one, one. You get that going, he tunes it. When he feels comfortable, he'll hand it back to you for vocal class, and I would sit there and play it for two hours or hand it to someone else to play when my hands fell asleep, you know. And so you really get grounded in the tambura, no matter what instrument you're going to play. So I ended up focusing on tabla and voice my first three years. And so would go and do those beginning vocal classes and go and then maybe play for the intermediate or advanced vocal classes, play tabla. And because I was a vocal student and interested in vocal and had grown up a singer in Western music, I gradually learned to play while I was playing tabla for him. Unexpected, wonderful byproduct that nobody was trying to teach me mm. just happened because I was accompanying him in so many classes. In all, you know, five, in ten beat cycles, eight and a half beat cycles, like that. And... uh Later, this was to come in so handy when I fell in love with Kirtan after I left Ali Akbar College because I could sing and play mm. tabla for Kirtan, which there are others out there, but it's not very common. Do you remember, you know, would, or would you be able to vocally give some of those examples of, you know, the not only the different styles that you learned, but then maybe showing what it would mean to have some of those variations. Kalyana Sangha Karata Rangaraliya Kalyana Sangha Karata Rangaraliya Kalyana Sangha Karata Rangaraliya Bhavara Gujara Pulihi Pulapari Chahuhu Aura Anyway, like that, like that. So the first was a keal, and the second was tarana, which is like scat singing. I'm singing, Those are all just nonsense rhythmic syllables. Sometimes tabla syllables, sometimes dance foot syllables, which are similar. Sometimes 
musical syllables. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I know you've res, uh, referred to Ali Akbar Khan as Kansab a couple times, and just was curious if you could share what you know what that means as a title. Well, Ali Akbar Khan's father, Aladdin Khan, was a court musician for the uh, Maharaja of Maipur. And somewhere along the line, he was acknowledged as, like, you know, the greatest of the great living musicians of his era. And he's still the greatest of the great, even from anybody. And um, he was given the title Khan, which is, he's Muslim, so Khan is like an honorific title given to great, accomplished masters. And that family is allowed to use that in, mm. in you know, their offspring. And so Ali Akbar Khan, the son of Alauddin Khan, and Sahib is kind of a, I don't know what Sahib means. It's an affectionate, honorific. So it's a respectful, affectionate, honorific Khan Sahib. And you slur it together and it's Khansab. Hmm. Perfect. And since since we just mentioned his father, would you mind telling you know a little bit of the story of how his father, you know, rose to that level of musicianship? And that's a long story, and there's so many of them. Um, Alaudian Khan ran away from home when he was eight years old, and he lived in Bangladesh, and he went to Calcutta, Kolkata, and found a teacher and told the teacher he was an orphan and that he really wanted to study with him and, uh, you know, and he'll do whatever. He was eight years old, you know. So the teacher looked at him and said, well, I'll teach you, but for 12 years I want you to just sing scales. Wow. No composition. And in India, in Indian classical music, we use our solfege is called sargam, so he just sang in sargam. And all the same exercises Western pianists and Western musicians learn. Etc. All those. And then a lot of particularly Indian ones, because they were in particular scales that adhered to raga which is the system of Indian music we'll talk about at, an, at another time. Seven years in, his brother found him and went to the teacher and said, hey, he's not an orphan, and besides, I came to bring him back home to get married. We, we arranged for the jewel of seven villages to marry him. And so the teacher was impressed that this little boy had lied to him just so he could study. Hmm. And he said, look, go get married. When you come back, I'll teach you. I'll start, you know, I won't, I won't wait 12 years, seven years. Hmm. So he goes to get married, and they say he ran away on his wedding night. I, I, I don't know. I, I met his wife. She, she was like 102, I think, when I met her, um, in, in, when I went to Kolkata with Alek Burkhan. And she would just sit there with the harmonium, and she was blind, and she would sing all day long, hmm. folk and Kirtan, oh, well, she was Muslim, so Kowali, I don't know what she was singing. Mm. And um,
So when he went back to Calcutta, his teacher was died. Oh, no. So he went off and he had a whole life of studying with other teachers. And he would use them. One teacher was a great Sarod player of his day. And he was an alcoholic. And Aladdin Khan would collect all the money every night after the concerts. And they would travel around India and to different courts and stuff. And at the end of the tour, Aladdin gave him all this money. And the teacher was so mad. He says, why did you keep that money from me? <laughs> that he kicked him out. Mm. And the guy wanted to drink it. He was trying to hide it. Um, so Aladdin Khan, finally, there was one great master in India, the greatest, Wazir Khan in Lucknow. And he went to Lucknow and... To get to study with the wazir, he had to get permission from the king. So he, the story is that there was a monk that helped him and wrote a note that said he, that, uh, well, he wrote him a note. He said, he said to Aladdin, give this to the guard, throw yourself in front of the carriage when the king comes out for his morning drive. And then give this to the guards when they come and hassle you to give to the king and they'll give it to the king. So he did that, the guards came, Gave the note. King said, what's that? What's that? Gave it to the king. King opens it up. The note said, I can play any instrument you have in the palace. Let me, let me study with your great wazir Khan. So the king, you know, pulled him. Why, why, should I, why should I let you study? And then he said, oh, I can play anything in the palace. King is a great student of this wazir Khan, so he's curious. Bring him to the palace. They bring all the instruments out. He plays all the instruments because growing up... Now, by now, he's probably in his 20s or early 30s. I'm not sure. Um, no, probably 30s. He, as a, as a young teenager, learned all the Western instruments playing in the Western marching bands in Kolkata hmm. for the British. No. He learned all those instruments. He learned all the Indian instruments. He played every instrument they had in the palace, Western and Eastern. King says, what else can you do? He says, well, I can notate anything you can sing, because he knew the king was a great singer and student of the same Wazir Khan. So the king starts singing, and Aladdin Khan starts singing back the solfege, the sargam, when the king sang uh, Jaya Radde, Jaya Krish, whatever, okay? And he was singing it all back to him. And he noticed the king was getting a little frustrated and angry. So he made mistakes on purpose. And immediately the king, like, lit up and said, Yes, okay, you can study with my... <laughs> so this is how he came to study with the last remaining greatest musician of India who was a direct descendant of Tansen from the court of Akbar in the mm -hmm. 1500s. And so like this, Aladdin Khan had learned everything there was in Indian classical music, you know, in, from, from like the 1890s on, right? Mm. And here he is now, he's like 60 years old, and he gets hired by the Maharaja of Maihar to be a court musician. And he has a son. 
and he's 60 years old. Mm. Alauddin Khan has a son named Ali Akbar Khan, and he has the dying desire to give Ali Akbar everything he's learned. So at the age of three, he started teaching him every instrument, Indian instrument. Mm -hmm. And then... I forget at what point they decided on Sarod. But he also had to study the vocal music. Because mm. that's how, in Indian classical music, that's how the traditions of the ragas, the melodies, and the rhythms, the talas, are passed on, is through the vocal music. Mm. And the vocal songs. The classical songs. Not We're not talking kirtan. Mm -hmm. Kirtan and bhajan is a lighter form of Indian music. Some might also call kirtan folk music. Bhajan is, is, a, is also a folkier form, of, uh, could be light classical, could be composed in a, more of a light classical style. But the full-on classical stuff is what Alaudian Khan mastered in. And he learned all the ragas, and he passed that ability on to his son from the age of three. And, you know, just how, when you say all the ragas, what would be your guess on, you know, how many different ragas there are? I, I'm, you know, I'm not even qualified to say. Um, I've, you know, I've written a lot of people's opinions. Ali Akbar Khan certainly taught me personally over my nine years of exposure. I was probably exposed to hundreds, hundreds but there are certain they come in families and and the the matri the patriarch and the matriarch of the family actually for every male there's six females hmm. and so the families are in the same scale and it's just rearranging how you would approach the notes but not intellectually rearranging them they're rearranged because of the emotions that they're trying to portray and the moods that that particular raga every raga has at least three moods it's probably a good time to say, and there's one mood in common for every raga, bhakti. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's the connection to bhakti yoga, right there. So all this classical music is a higher form of musical devotion, a higher form of musical discipline to stay in tune perfectly and to stay in rhythmic perfectly as a path to God. Sure, if you're singing, you're, you're also singing spiritual lyrics as well. Similar to bhajan, you know, a story about the gods mm -hmm. rather than kirtan, which is just God, God, God is God, is God, is God, is God, God. God is God is God is God is God, 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 right? Maybe a little very great, you know. <laughs> but bhajan is the next level up to kirtan, which tells a story and might have a chorus that's God, 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 God. <laughs> Pardon me for paraphrasing. Um, so in the classical music, you learn hundreds of fixed compositions. You learn how to improvise and make them flowery and beautiful. And then if you're an instrumentalist, you also learn to play that composition in an instrumental way. And you're, you're imbibing the emotions, the three emotions that you're showed, how they are 
reached by playing this delicate musical figure. It's like the heart of Bhairavi. There's a heart for every rag. There's the king note. So, and the prime minister, might be reversed, ma, and sa is the prime minister. And then you have different family variations of that minor scale, Bhairavi. And so you each one has, you know, different ways to approach notes. So you're learning, it's almost as if you're carving or painting a masterpiece, and you're learning which colors to use. But it's audio. It's audible. And what were those three moods that you were talking about? Well, there are, there are nine basic moods, but there are even more than that when you get into theater. And you have peace and pathos and um, um, joyfulness. Um, anger is a little more getting closer into, into theater music. Mm. Um, what have I, where am I? I should have written them down to remember. It's been so long. Um, happiness, sadness, longing. I'm getting close to nine. Bhakti, devotion, um, heroic. A lot of the old Drupad, pure Hindustani Classical music is very heroic. Mm. There's, you know, like rhythms that go with that, like Japtal Tenbi Din Na Tukla Din 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 Na Tin Na Tukla Din Kuridin Din Na. You know, very, very heroic stuff. And um, when you move out, you, I mean, basically the classical music we like to think was the the original raga formats and the the scales that came down and the original music i would say today we might get away with calling it channeled by these rishis like in the jungle and in the temples it moved into the temples and they were hearing somebody gave them this incredibly complex literature mm. to how to portray nature and emotions and everything going on on the planet through music. And it really is Ayurvedic cooking of music. Mm. It's the Ayurvedic science. So, Nada Brahma, the sound of God, is really one of the Vedic yogas along with all the other yogas, whether it's asanas or um, bhakti yoga or... Um, Jnana. Jnana yoga, intellectual studying, the scriptures yoga. So it is another yoga. And I've heard it referred to as the lost yoga because it was never written down mm. or not. I mean, it was in certain sections, but really the bulk of it was passed down from father to son, father, guru to disciple, to, to the king's children, to the lords in the courts, children, it was not folk music. It was protected in the temples, and then it was protected in the courts. And then about a thousand years ago, you had the Arabs invade, and then the Muslims took over in North India and set up the Mughal dynasties. And they 
brought in, even though they were Muslim, they brought in the best Hindu temple musicians they could find, or possibly from the old older courts, the, the Hindu courts that they had subdued in North India. So they would lure away the greatest musicians to their Mughal courts, and they would also bring musicians from Persia, the Sufi musicians. And for hundreds of years, starting about a thousand years ago, there was this intersection where the musicians were taken care of by the emperor or the kings. So they didn't have to go get a job like most of us have to do today while we're studying. Their whole day was devoted to practicing and playing and studying music, and there were obviously intercultural exchanges and marriages and students who would be born Hindu and study um, what what was going on in the classical music at that time was the Muslim Sufis were learning the classical Hindu Carnatic music and it changed and got the title Hindu Stan, Hindustani North Indian classical music is a merger of Muslim and Hindu music. And many ragas were then composed in the, you know, around the 1500s, 1400s that show a more romantic style mm. that merged into the ragas. Still a lot of serious stuff too. But up until that point, the drum that had been played in India was a pakawach. It was a single drum. It was a barrel of wood or clay, and it was played sideways, and it was very martial and, you know, elephantine, very low pitch. And so when the Muslims came and brought this romanticism and the music started in the courts to be played in this North Indian style, it needed a lighter-sounding drum. And so tabla was obviously invented. So it's a much lighter-sounding drum. There are so many stories about tabla. We'll save the story for another day. Can we have one story? <laughs> Well, they would have competitions and drummers would go to another palace in another kingdom. And um, this is before tabla, so they were playing the pakawach. And the pakawach had that heavy sound. And the drummers would play solos. And they say that the drummer who just totally blew everybody away reached over and grabbed the other guy, guy's big barrel drum, and broke it in half. And he handed it to the other guy, and the other guy went home to his kingdom and took his two drums in his practice room and probably put them up like that hmm. and had an epiphany. Probably modified them a little and went back the next year and blew them all away. <laughs> Nobody really knows how tabla was invented. Uh, every school of tabla has their own story. <laughs> I like that one. Though. And you kind of you demonstrated earlier, uh, you know, by being able to recite what you were playing. Would you be able to give you know an example of that? You know, not only are there all these different individual notes, 
that you can play on a tabla, but they have a vocal, you know, component to them as well, counterpart. Well, there's there's less than a dozen main strokes. You have ta, which is played on the edge. If you move your finger over, also notice I have an anchor here Mm -hmm. for ta. If I move, I'm hitting the wood underneath. It's got a woody sound. If I move my finger over, this is tin. There's no wood under it. Hear that? It's a little more rounded. Here's ta with the wood. And here's tin. A little without. Then if I keep going, I pick up the anchor. That's tune. And then I get tet, like a platypus, these mm-hmm. three fingers. And then my index, te, tet, te. And this stroke, ne. And we have tere. And on the bass drum. So this is all on the treble, the dion, at the right, right hand. And on the left, for me, the bayon, gay. And I just walk one finger, two fingers. Gay, gay. Gay, 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 gay. So by pressing with my palm and sliding onto the black dot. change the pitch we call it change the modulate modulate so they're all called gay and cut now when you put them together ta and gay all the treble sounds on the treble drum ta tin and tune become a d sound so ta and gay become da Tin and gay become din, tune and gay, dun, tet and gay, get and ter and gay become det. Pretty cool. cool And when you put them together, you learn hundreds of fixed composition in half dozen or more styles. Different regions have different styles of composition and you have a verbal language mnemonics I believe they call it everything that you play you also say almost as much as you play it which means you're saying it while you're playing it you're saying it when you're not playing it when you're waiting for the bus and people are moving away from you (laughs) thinking you're a little weird Da din din da da din 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 da da tin 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 da tete din 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 da. Da din din da da din din da da tin tin ta 
Tete Din. So there's also a clapping and a waving. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Da Din Din Da Da Din Din Da Nine. 15, 16, da. So, all these different patterns that are basic to the sitar player or the vocalist or the sarod player or the instrumentalist are called tekas. And those tekas, for classical music, generally start at 7, and the most common ones are 7, 10, 12, and the most common 16. 16-beat rhythm cycle, which is what we just played. We also play in odd times like 9 and 13 and 15 and 8 and a half and 9 and a quarter, and that's for another video. But 16 is what we just played. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, divided 4, 4, 4, 4, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. So clap. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Da, din. So inside this cycle, din, ta, I get to play composition or improvise. Da, ti, da, ga, din, nagin, da, ga. So I played a little kind of composition or improv, and then I came back to the teka. And the teka is that fixed rhythm that the sitar player or any instrumentalist and I both recognize as our bottom line rhythm. So when I play this, they're soloing, improvising, or playing composition. When they're done playing their turn, they play one phrase three times, which is called a high, and we're going to do a five beat. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, one. And that's to one. We're back to one. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. So when they play that or sing that, I know it's my turn to play my composition or my solo. And I end also with a tihai. One phrase, three times. I did play a tihai at the end, and now the sitar player is going nuts, and I'm waiting patiently, and I'm going to use my time to accompany them with some way of flowering, ornamentating this teka to make it complementary to what they're playing. So a good tabla player knows how to just do it right, which usually means play soft.
<laughs> but you have to accent the bars. So every four beats from one, one, five, nine, 13. So you accent those. And so like that, I'm a roadmap for them. So if they get lost, when they hear 10, 11, 12, 13, two, three, four, five, here we go, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. So what they're hearing is this bass drum drop out. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, it comes back, 15, 16, one. So it comes back on 14, 15, 16. One. And that's how they know where one is. Ah, they can feel that. So if they get lost, they wait for that, and that, and this, and one. If I'm twice as fast, da, din, din, da. Five, six, din, da, da, din, din. Din, din, da, ti, da, din, din, da, ti, da, din, din, na, na, ti, ti, din. So, here it is again. 10, 11, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 1. So here you can hear it better. Come in three by us, three bass beats. One, two, three, one. That's how you hear it. Okay. So it's just a little introduction to what's called tal. And the reason it's so important is because both the sitarist or the singer, or the instrumentalist, and the tuba player are using that tal, that rhythm, in this case 16, in a big cyclical pattern. And the most important beat is the one. It's called the sum. And it's that first clap. Then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. The emptiness when we wave is this whole structure is Shiva hitting the first beat and then pulling away the emptiness. And all rhythms have a fullness and an emptiness. And in India on tabla, that fullness is shown here. Gay, 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 gay. And the emptiness. So the fullness is the Baya, the bass drum, da, din, din, da, that's all full, din, da, empty, and full, full. So all this is a grand vision of Shiva hitting the gong and pulling back, and every rhythmic cycle has its fullness and its emptiness. Mm. It's so wonderful, because you have such great rhythmic cycles. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So here's the empty. 
full, empty. So this bowl, a bowl is the words, the mnemonics, tin tin na din na din na. Tin tin na din na din na. Tin ta din dage. Tin ta din dage. Tin ta wonderful. Actually called Pashtu. It's a folk rhythm in seven. Tin ta din dage. Tin ta din dage. Rad e rad e rad e gin. Rad e govinda. Rod, hey, Rod, hey, Rod, hey, so sweet, so sweet. And then, so that's a taker, a fixed rhythmic poem that all musicians know. Classical, it's tin tin na din na din na tin tin na din na din na. I'm playing the folk version. Tin ta din daga, tin ta din daga. Same thing. And then Japtal, 10 beat, two fives, two three, two three. So the clap is the same. One, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, wave and nine, ten. D na, D, D na, T na, D, D na. Beautiful. I showed you this earlier for the the Drupad Royal feeling. Um, so again, that's another taker that shows how the rhythm is going to move, the composition is going to move, and there are fixed lots of literature and compositions written in each of these takers. So. Kansab Ali Akbar Khan, when he would teach, or even if he sat down to to um, perform at a concert, that's a whole other topic. Um, he would feel the way he feels, and then find the melody that has those moods for mm. himself, and then teach in that mood. So you're saying like listening to the emotions and feelings that were going on and then articulating that through music. Yeah. I, think you, I mean, I can't say every time what he feels. Sure. Um, you know, and certainly for teaching, he might come and he has to start with what he taught last week, you right. know. But certainly in concert, and um, when we would tour, I got to tour with him for seven years and play tambura. So I'm in the dressing room with him. And he's just reminiscing. Mm. <laughs> he's got a smile on his you know, and He doesn't smile that much. But sometimes, mostly he's like, mm, you know, just really going deep. And he used to say, go, you know, he'd, he'd be remembering lessons that his father taught him, mm. compositions. And, and and then he might fool around with a little. In my time as 
Kansub's, Ali Akbar Khan's um, personal assistant. In my time as Ali Akbar Khan's personal assistant, um, which was about seven years, uh, we I had the great, great uh, honor to be there for many Jugalbandi duet concerts with Ravi Shankar. And there's a long history there that most people are not aware of, but Ravi Shankar, when he was a little boy, grew up in Europe in his older brother Udoy Shankar's dance troupe in the 30s and 40s. Udoy had a very progressive dance troupe, uh, like Isadora Duncan, that's, you know, back in the 30s and 40s. And he had put together dance styles from India, all different, and and had really created a very... Uh, in India, you don't do that. Mm. <laughs> you know, you keep the traditions. But he was mostly in Europe and also America. So Raviji would be little Balakrishna playing flute, little boy, and then he'd run down into the orchestra pit and pick up a little sitar or whatever was available and he would play. And one year, Udoya Shankar brought Ali Akbar's father, Aladdin Khan, the great maestro, to Europe because he wanted to let him play solo and show Europeans how great classical music was, mm. how, how beautiful it was. Because the dance music is a different, lighter class, lighter, folkier thing. So like this, Aladdin Khan met Ravi Shankar when he was young. And in his teens, Ravi Shankar finally was persuaded by Aladdin Khan to come to this little dusty village in India where there was a Maharaj of Mahar and live with uh, Aladdin Khan and Ali Akbar Khan and become his disciple. Mm. And Ali Akbar Khan had a sister. And unfortunate to say that in the old days in India, they wouldn't teach the women, the girls. And when Ali Akbar Khan was little and Alaudin would teach him, he would then leave and go to the market. And Ali Akbar would have to try and remember this usually very complicated lesson mm. while he was gone and then play it for him as soon as he came back. And his sister would always listen from behind the pillar. Mm. And she had a better memory. Mm. And she would help Ali Akbar learn the compositions every day or whatever and one day Aladdin came back early and heard her singing the lesson and uh, so after that he t he taught her mm. and when Ravi Shankar comes along many years later she's a monster sitar player mm. and she specialized in the surbahar which is the big bass sitar and as is the culture of India, in order to really become the guru's lineage, you marry into the family if you can. So Alaudin set up, matched his daughter to Ravi Shankar. Hmm. Ravi Shankar is Hindu. Ali Akbar, um, Alaudin Khan and his family are Muslim. It shows you how there, was very, there were liberal families in those days, way right. back then. Well, let's see. So, so uh, Aladdin Khan marries um, Ravi Shankar to Annapurna, Ali Akbar's sister. They they have a son, 
They, they eventually divorce. Um, I, I can't vouch for the truth of what I'm about to say, but I firmly believe that Alauddin Khan, upon meeting Ravi Shankar, one of the reasons he encouraged him to come and and actually married, had him marry into the family and get the family jewels of the teachings, was by traveling with Ravi Shankar in Europe, he understood that Ravi Shankar understood the West mm. and would be a really good ambassador of this classical music mm. to the West and know how to present it in the right way. Whereas his own son, Ali Akbar Khan, was not a worldly person, grew up in this little dusty village playing music all day. Ali Akbar started at three years of age. He was the receptacle to teach and pass it all on. Mm. However, Ali Akbar was also the greatest performing musician as well, acknowledged in India. And how did Zakir come into the picture? Zakir was my teacher, my tabla teacher, and Ali Akbar Khan was my vocal teacher. And he is the son of Alaraka, the great, great maestro Alaraka, Ustad Alaraka, who was Ravi Shankar's main tabla player for many decades, up until he, he, he needed to stop. And Alaraka is like one of the grand old guys. And so Zakir was brought over on tours with Ravi Shankar and Alaraka in the 60s. Let's back up a little while we're there. So Ali Akbar came over in 55 at the at the behest of the Rockefellers to play at um, uh, the great Mo- the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. It was a big deal. The Rockefellers were funding it and it was like bring classical music over and so Ali Akbar came. I think Ravi Shankar was booked and he couldn't do it and he gave the gig to Ravi G. I mean to Ali Akbar Khan. Uh, Ravi came right after. The two of them started touring in in the West. Mm-hmm. John Coltrane, all the jazz artists. There are books written about East-West fusion and, and the way that jazz artists and even Yehudi Menuhin and, and great Western classical artists re- came into contact with Ali Akbar Khan and Ravi Shankar and several others. But those, you know, these two were the greats. And um, Yehudi Menuhin, the great violinist of his day, who was considered the best, called Ali Akbar Khan the greatest musician alive on the planet because he is perfect in rhythm and perfect in melody. And he had the vast literature of Indian classical raga melodies to choose from. So he's improvising in forms, recomposing these forms. So the jazz players were like, wow, they could tell he was improvising. Mm-hmm. And then they would understand that, oh, he's, he's just in that one scale. He's not bringing other notes. Oh, But in improvising, there are all the rules of the raga, playing which note next, going up above before you hit the note below it, you know, and when you descend, you can't go straight down the scale. You got to go crooked. Each raga has different ways to bring out the moods. And so you've learned all this. So he's improvising, still bringing all that incredible 
mastery of the emotional content of the music and not violating the rules of the rog. Pretty amazing. So I diverge. So Zakir shows up in this fertile territory where Alaraka is teaching some of the great Western jazz drummers, your hmm. Buddy Rich. Oh, get out. You know, I mean, Buddy Rich is coming over. And like, what? what's going on? You know, and uh, God, there are all kinds. And So right, right from the get-go, Zakir, actually, Alaraka told me that when Zakir was in his mother's belly, that he would lean over and whisper and play on the belly. Hmm. And whisper the bowl into the belly. So Zakir started studying before he was born in a very real way. And so he grew up as a, you know, he mastered the tradition. And they say in classical music, you master the tradition before you start fucking around, fooling around. <laughs> You know, so Westerners, they all they all just show me how to do it. I mean, I was the same way. Oh, I'm going to go study Indian music at the college for a year, and then I'll come back with my high school buddies that I had a rock band with, right. and I'll bring all that to, you know, and then unfortunately, or fortunately, I got hooked mm-hmm. and understood how complicated it was and that it was a lifetime pursuit and that these guys were teaching, and I really wanted, as a teenager, you know, a young hippie growing up, I quit high school because, you know, I was like, oh, you know, this is book learning. I need a apprenticeship with a musician. And I manifested the greatest musicians on the planet. Mm. And that night, Ramdas was there. <laughs> I could have gone that way, right? If those guys weren't there, who knows? So backing up to Zakir, Zakir grew up in this fertile territory where he was a computer could do anything. And all these jazz guys wanted to play. And right off the bat in 75, John McLaughlin showed up. I was I was Zakir's student, actually, and a beginner, and lived across the street. And the next day, Zakir said, oh, you'll never guess who came over last night. He said, John McLaughlin, I, he wants me to play in his band, Shakti, which hadn't really started yet. They had one album with the Mur- Murdunga player. I forget hmm. his name. So Zakir was ready to play South Indian style because John McLaughlin studied South Indian with El Shankar, the great South Indian violinist. So, and they had a Gatam player, hmm. who um, Vikru, who played uh, the clay pot. Hmm. So it was really more South Indian style with a little bit of open-endedness for John, but John had studied with El Shankar, South Indian. So Zakir, no problem. Zakir was playing, there was a while in there when Zakir was invited by Van Morrison to play on an album, and he wasn't able to, to come to be in town. And I get the, I'm a Van Morrison nut, and I get the call from my friend Tony Morrison, who was his violinist at the time, and also studying with Ali Akbar. She said, Daniel, she knew. He wants a tuba player while Zakir's not here until Zakir comes back. And for two weeks, while Van worked on Into the Music, came out in 1980, I got to play every day with Van. Wow. Rehearsing his songs with the band. Super. I brought the tambura down. Sometimes he would 
fake Indian singing. And, right. But that album, Into the Music, I love it. Anyway, Zakir came in, played this unbelievable part for Van for the recording. You know, he could do it all. He played with anybody and everybody. And then Katak Dance, where they're playing, doing it with their feet with 108 bells on each foot. It's like f- sped up flamenco dance. Speed up flamenco dance. Well, flamenco is related to katak. And uh, the tuple player plays what they're dancing. So a katak dancer might play... Um, no, that's a tuple ball. Um, Tuple player can make up whatever sounds good. So I just happened to play da 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 backwards tete. So Zakir was a master at that. He'd just show up on stage and read the feet. Without I mean, knowing those things ahead of time. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Now, I played for Katak for many years, and so I knew the compositions. And his wife, Antoinette, would sometimes sit behind him and recite. So he didn't have to work so hard. Mm-hmm. But he could do it without either of us, no mm-hmm. problem. And uh, actually, usually I didn't play when he played. And when the girls came out, the students, then I would play. However, if they were all out there, then we would both both play. And we had a little ensemble, James Pomerantz on sitar and maybe Chris Reese on Sarod. Oh, those were the days. So the Al Akbar College with Zakir, when I got there, still had what was called the Numaihar Band, which was really the Ali Akbar College Orchestra, the one that I had seen with Ramdas in 72 or 3 mm. um, on stage. When I got there, it was still like 28 people, and I had grown up a vocalist. And George Ruckert, the music director, needed singers in the choir. There were four men, four women. And he immediately threw me in the choir. And I was doing these big orchestras for dance dramas that Zakir would come and play. Mm. And, and so all of a sudden, right off the bat, I was in that group that I had seen on stage. Wow. But I was faking it because I didn't know Indian music. So I would just record it on my little cassette machine and learn it by heart. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what I was singing. I had the words written out. And just follow my friend Chris Reese mm-hmm. or Gary Malkin. And just, you know. Later I became the tuble player after I got good enough after about three or four years. Right. And, and, the, and the position opened up. And we shrunk down to an eight-piece group mm-hmm. rather than the big orchestra. And uh, that... Ali Akbar Khan compositions for orchestra, like like nothing you've ever heard, like big symph- like like Western symphonies, but with Indian instruments. Mm. The vast literature of classical music is just rooted in this thousands of years, and people piling compositions. People don't write ragas very often. And only the greats. And even Al-Akbar Khan might work for years on, on a certain kind of a scale that sounds like maybe this rug and a little of that rug. And he's working it out, and he feels it. He knows this is a different rug, but he hasn't quite finished composing it yet. Hmm. 
So it's not something you would just sit down and intellectually write. You, need, you know, it needs to come out of this well. We talked about earlier how Zakir and Alec Brakhan really came from a rooted, grounded classical tradition not breaking any rules and then gradually getting to the point where they had to break rules because they were hearing things that they weren't taught eventually. So this is how... um, Take a break. Break. Break.